Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. I'm really excited to bring you this conversation with today's guest, Ryan Williams, the founder and executive chairman of Cadre, a tech-enabled commercial real estate investing platform that's backed by Andreessen Horowitz, Coastal Ventures, Thrive Capital, General Catalyst, and several others. We talk about Ryan's experience growing up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, when he first got into entrepreneurship and ultimately how he got into real estate investing and building Cadre, which since its founding has closed more than $5 billion in transactions and delivered a greater than 25% net average IRR. We also talk about Ryan's longer term vision, which involves promoting financial prosperity by allowing more people access to investing in commercial real estate. I really enjoyed this conversation with Ryan, and I hope you will too. Well, Ryan Williams, it is so great to have you on the show and great to talk to you again. Likewise, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Well, there's so much that I want to dig into, especially some of the latest uh, with Cadre. But I think first for the folks who are watching and listening, it'll be helpful to kind of go back to your earliest years when you first kind of got that entrepreneurial bug as a young uh, kid. So tell us about what it was like growing up and how you first got into entrepreneurship. Yeah, so I am. Um, I'm originally from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, um, and uh, you know, have uh, long as I can remember, always uh, sort of chosen to see challenges um, uh, as opportunities. And I think that, to me, is a, the essence of really what makes a great entrepreneur: someone who sees uh, obstacles where others see. Uh, our obstacles as opportunities, rather, where others see obstacles as, as problems that might be insurmountable, uh, and then takes the initiative to uh, to try to solve and address some of those um, obstacles. Uh, and so, um, you know, growing up, you know, I didn't come from a lot of money, um, grew up working class, didn't have, um, you know, kind of disposable income to be going, spending 10, 15, 20 dollars buying Nike and Adidas and Jordan headbands and, and wristbands, but I, pl I played sports and, and I wanted those products. And so I said, well, I wonder if there's a lower cost way, you know, to, um, uh, to buy those products myself just so that I can afford them. And sure enough, there was, there was a wholesale garment district. Um, and long story short, was able to start buying these products for myself initially um, so that I could have these headbands and wristbands without the, the name brands, the Nikes or otherwise. Um, and I wasn't the only person that uh, had that pain point in my community. So I had teammates and friends and others who um, started buying the products for me and that became my first business. And uh, that really catapulted me forward. Um, it built that entrepreneurial muscle, so to speak. And, um, you know, through that business, I was able to get involved with the National Foundation for Teaching Entrepreneurship um, won some competitions, uh, got some mentors, uh, and many of those mentors saw a lot more in me than I frankly even saw in myself and encouraged me to think bigger and bolder. And um, one of those big, bold um, sort of initiatives was a college and thinking about going to a school uh, that I frankly only uh, heard about, um, uh, like Harvard. And so um, I was fortunate to uh, apply, didn't think I was going to get in, but was accepted. I think the entrepreneurial uh, background played a big part. And once I got there, then I had the resources um, to apply myself and my ideas in new, uh, new ways. And so um, that experience um, beyond the culture shock uh, is uh, really an important inflection point in my journey because um, you know, through my time there, I built a network up and that network became critical to me doing things like launching a real estate investing business, um, where I had people who had money who could back me. Um, and then frankly, also, um, launching Cadre, uh, Cadre being a, a platform and a marketplace aimed at allowing more people to invest in real estate, more people like myself who didn't grow up with access to ownership of real estate. Um, and so entrepreneurship is, is pretty, um, uh, you know, pretty critical to my journey. It runs uh, deep, my background and my veins. And, um, you know, and I think uh, going forward, it'll, it'll continue to do the same. Ryan, there's so many amazing things that you just um, laid out there. And I, I was taking notes because what you're on, what you're sharing is just, it's, it's 
literal gold, um, some of these insights. So I just want to bring up some of these ideas with you. Um, you mentioned kind of having this mindset where you look at challenges as um, opportunities, which I think is probably really important for entrepreneurship, um, addressing those those obstacles. You talk about these pain points that you had, like the, the headbands, the sweatbands, and um, going out and this is what really got me, building this entrepreneurial muscle. Can we talk about that? Because I feel like a lot of us have ideas that maybe we never execute on. Talk to me about this process of building that muscle and how maybe does it, it gets stronger over time, I suppose, as you work it out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, so I'm happy you asked that question because so many people hear about, uh, you know, the journey of building a business or they see the end product or the end organization or end company and assume that, uh, you know, folks just got there overnight um, or that there were never challenges or there's never adversity or there's never pain. Uh, and that could, could not be further from the truth. Um, the reality is just like building a muscle and working out and, um, and building strength, you know, you've got to go through a lot. You have to uh, be able to persevere uh, despite adversity. You've got to be able to push yourself and push yourself in ways that uh, you probably never anticipated to come out stronger. And for me, uh, the, the entrepreneurial muscle was built not just through the success and through the, the ventures that turned out well, um, but also through a lot of the failures. Um, a lot of the uh, um, experiences where uh, I uh, had to deal with more pain than I had anticipated or where the ideas didn't pan out. And so when I talk about building that muscle, um, you know, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's an ongoing process and it's a process where you know, you, you, you learn about yourself, you learn about how to best apply um, your unique skill sets and experiences, um, and one in which you gain confidence and you gain strength. And that ultimately is, is what I think is most important is uh, learning from both the, the wins and the losses, um, and then approaching those next opportunities or challenges uh, with renewed um, and greater confidence and uh, greater resiliency so that you know, you can, uh, you can build an even stronger muscle and have an even greater impact and then also pay it back as well um, to, uh, to others. Um, yeah. Because I can't, I can't pretend as if, you know, everything that I've, I've been able to accomplish is, is just my own doing. And a lot of people who have uh, taken me under their wings and, and uh, showed me their own entrepreneurial muscles uh, so that I didn't have to always experience all the, the hardships and challenges that they navigated themselves. Yeah, the mentorship component you mentioned being critical. Um, just one quick following question, uh, because it is impressive that you started this um, when you were a teenager, you started this first business and you've built Cadre into an incredible in business, business. And I promise we will get to Cadre here, but um, is it just taking that first step into entrepreneurship? Is it is it scary? What's it, what, what kind of goes through your mind? Or is it kind of exhilarating? And then you realize, hey, I can do this and that you can do more things. What is that like? What's that mindset like? Yeah, what I would say is, um, to me, it, it, it's uh it's a little bit of everything you mentioned, but ultimately what, what is most, um, I guess, most important and really consistent is, is liberating. Um, to me, the, the, uh, the ability to build something, uh, to take an idea and bring it to life is, um, is liberating in that, you know, you know, you have control, you have uh, a lot of autonomy um, and, uh, you know, to the extent that you want to propel that idea forward, you know, it's on your shoulders. And uh, there's always extenuating circumstances and always, you know, kind of outside forces that can help or hurt. Um, but, you know, for me, I've always taken a lot of pride in, in being able to uh, uh, be able to shape, you know, my, my, my journey, um, have better control of my destiny. I think entrepreneurship gives you, gives you that avenue better than any other uh, experience working for somebody else or, um, or, or pursuing someone else's passion. And so I, I always say that, you know, that whole uh, dynamic of, of, you know, having freedom, uh, being sort of liberated, so to speak, in terms of how you spend your time and who you answer to uh, is, is the most important um, uh, kind of fulfilling feeling I got. At the same time, you also realize it's all on your shoulders. There is no safety net. There is no plan B. There's no you know, back up um, if it doesn't work out. And so you got to be willing to absorb uh, that ambiguity and that uncertainty 
Um, and also just, you know, look uh, fear in the eyes and realize that the vast majority of ventures do not work out. Um, there's been a lot of smart people who have tried a lot of different ideas. Um, but, you know, if you bring a level of tenacity, domain expertise, um, and persistence and constant iteration, um, great things can happen. And like I mentioned, at a minimum, you build that muscle that'll serve you well in future endeavors. I really like that. So um, you go from Baton Rouge, Louisiana to Harvard. Um, you mentioned it was a bit of a culture shock, but also really important to networking. Talk to us about your time at Harvard. Sure. My, my, my time at Harvard was amazing. Um, and I'm proud now, you know, thinking about everything full circle to call them an investor, um, you know, in, in my business, which I never anticipated would happen. But um, it, it didn't start out as amazing. Um, you know, when I, when I first got to, uh, to college, uh, it was a culture shock in the sense of um, socially, you know, it was a completely different network of people. Wealth I'd never seen, I didn't even really know existed before, was, was omnipresent. Um, academically, it was incredibly challenging. <laughs> I tell the story a lot. You know, I went to public schools throughout my whole, um, my whole uh, uh, pre-college life, and I'd never studied in the library before. You know, I'd always been able to uh, do well uh, without, um, you know, being as meticulous and methodical as I found out you needed to be. Um, and, and then I think also just professionally, um, I realized pretty quickly that there were these networks within this network of people who, um, knew how to navigate the investment banking world or the real estate world or the financial services world. Um, and I didn't. And so when all that converges, it can be overwhelming. And like I tell people often, you can allow that to break you down or you can allow it to, uh, allow you to rather break records or, um, you know, uh, break others' expectations. And so I chose the latter, but it wasn't, wasn't easy. And what I, what I dug deep into was, uh, again, that entrepreneurial muscle. And so what I, I realized was I couldn't be the only person who was sort of struggling with trying to figure out how to um, move forward and, and thrive in this environment, um, especially on the professional dimension. And so... Um, I started talking to more and more uh, classmates, more and more folks. And what I realized is that um, I was not the only person trying to figure out how to navigate succeeding within this network and, and unlocking some of these networks within networks. And what I found was that um, there was this huge opportunity to uh, empower undergraduates who maybe didn't come from a family that had deep connections in investment banking or financial services by um, you know, helping those undergraduates understand the basics of, of finance and real estate and trading and venture capital and private equity. Um, it was a liberal arts school, so there was really no curriculum that taught you about finance or business, um, but we had all these resources around us. And so I uh, ultimately, I just started an organization my freshman year. Um, it's now, um, if not the one of the largest pre-professional organizations at Harvard called Veritas Financial Group. The idea was simple. It was to empower undergraduates um, to uh, basically have access to information that would serve them well if they wanted to pursue a career in finance. So I recruited Harvard Business School professors and MBA students. I got turned down by a lot. 90% probably said, I don't want to deal with you know the kids across the river that are undergraduates. But enough did say, yes, I'd love to help. Um, I built a curriculum. Um, using online resources and, uh, and started an organization that now has allowed thousands of undergraduates to understand the basics of these, um, uh, of these financial services uh, sectors and channels so that they can go and uh, have internships um, and navigate the space with the same level of information and access as others who uh, might have come from these backgrounds. And so that, again, is an example of using that entrepreneurial um, sort of uh, curiosity, uh, seeing the challenges that I was personally navigating um, and trying to build a solution in the form of an organization that helped uh, connect uh, undergraduates to business school professors and to financial institutions so that the next generation of students uh, who maybe had similar backgrounds to mine would be able to thrive um, and not struggle. Yeah, certainly. It, it ties back to what you were saying at the top of the conversation just around when you see these obstacles or challenges and you see them as opportunities too. And it's 
um, you know, serving others um, to this day as well. It's amazing. Um, so was your time you, I, during your time at Harvard, that's where you first got exposed to real estate. Is that correct? That that's where you first started. Yeah. Investing. Talk to me about how you first um, came about. It was residential real estate because cadre focus on commercial and we'll get to that. But talk to me about your first foray into real estate. Yeah. So the connective tissue to the story I just went through is one of the curriculum tracks that I started was in real estate. Um, and there was a professor uh, at, at Harvard Business School um, who uh, really took me under his wings that, that first year named Arthur Siegel. And um, he had been there for decades. And he said, you know, real estate is most important asset class to own to build multi-generational wealth. And that stuck with me, um, you know, and, and it didn't really become uh, real to me until late 2008, sort of early 2009. Um, so this was now going my sophomore year of college, um, and I went down to Atlanta, Georgia, to uh, to visit one of my my roommates um, and best friends. And um, I'd been there the year before to visit him, and that time, you know, his neighborhood seemed, you know, just like you know, typical, um, uh, you know, uh, middle class American neighborhood. Every, you know, everything seemed uh, almost in, in, impeccable in terms of. Uh, you know, how, how, how nice the street was and everybody seemed to be happy. And I was shocked when I went um, this go around to see that, you know, there was every three or every four homes that looked like they um, had either been foreclosed on, abandoned, or people were moving out. Um, and I asked him, you know, what was going on? And he said, well, my understanding is that there are a lot of people who are just underwater on their mortgages. There's a lot of subprime lending, a lot of predatory lending that was going on. And what we what I what I now realized looking back was that we were beginning to see the earliest days of the great uh, financial subprime credit crisis um, un, unfolding in front of our own eyes. Um, Georgia had the most bank failures out of any state, um, and uh, what was happening was that there were a lot of people who were literally losing, um, you know, their their life savings, you know, their main source of equity. And um, the more time I spent in Atlanta, the more time I did doing research, the more I realized that this was an opportunity, again, to give people who otherwise were being foreclosed on a second chance at home ownership and an amazing investing opportunity as well, because I did leverage some of the learnings from the, uh, the organization I started about how to think about investing and in owning real estate. And so um, what we ended up doing was building a business where uh, we created a, a rent-to-buy uh, um, uh, investment platform. We would you know, look at uh, single-family homes throughout the uh, Atlanta metro area. We'd try to find homes that we thought were especially mispriced because a lot of the data was available online. Um, the tax county assessor records gave you a proxy for historical values. And then the banks at this time were so desperate to get these houses off their balance sheet, they were listing them on their websites um, and you could see when a house would be auctioned and at which price. And so we built this model to value homes before Zillow and Redfin and Trulia really were up at scale. Um, and we started going directly to banks, making offers to buy the homes. And then we were focused on ensuring that we could identify the previous owners and if possible, give them the opportunity to rent um, and to have that second shot at home ownership. And, I'm really proud that, you know, the first house that we bought, we were able to implement this program. Um, you know, as a single mom, few kids who had just fallen on hard times, who, um, you know, had previously been foreclosed on, was able to rent a house um, back, uh, interestingly enough, on a, a street called New Hope Road. Um, She's able to build her credit up. She was able to buy the house back from us. Um, we made a little bit less than three times our money on Levered, and this was going into my junior year. And uh, we had classmates who had a lot more liquidity than us who backed us. And when we um, raised the money, we, we, uh, we told them they could expect a good return in the near future. And we delivered. And when we returned the money, they, they all said, can you do this again? So I spent the better part of my, my last year or so in college um, focused more on building out this real estate business, buying single family homes throughout the Atlanta metro area, uh, but always focusing on community. Um, not focusing solely on profits. And I think that, um, you know, you've seen today the institutionalization of single family homes. Um, and I think there's a real danger in the space if 
you know, the people who are buying these homes aren't thinking about the impact to the community and who actually, um, you know, they're uh, being, being neighbors with, so to speak. And so we, um, we were proud of the model we built. We ended up owning uh, dozens of homes, hundreds of residential units over the next couple of years. Um, and, uh, and ultimately, it was through that experience that uh, I was um, connected to Blackstone, uh, who became one of the largest landlord of homes in the country as well. But at Harvard, to your point, um, my, my experience investing and buying real estate and seeing the power of ownership um, and the power of lack of ownership as well um, uh, first became clear. Yeah. And that really speaks to like your ethos of you can do well and do good at the same time. And the way you approached um, that asset class and, um, you know, really helping homeowners too at the same time, which is amazing. Um, You mentioned that was how you got introduced to Blackstone. You also did a stint at Goldman Sachs doing technology, um, media and telecom banking. Um, And I imagine those experiences too helped kind of get you ready to launch Cadre. Talk to me about your time um, at those firms and then we'll get into Cadre. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, after I graduated, you know, I had this real estate business, but it wasn't making enough money uh, on its own for it to, uh, uh, to, to justify me not working full time. Um, uh, but fortunately I was able to uh, work uh, during the day you know, my, my, uh, my financial modeling skills. So I worked in the tech media telecom investment banking group uh, in New York at Goldman Sachs. By night, you know, I was working on growing my real estate business. Um, and what I learned at Goldman uh, and specifically in the tech group was that technology was disrupting and transforming every major industry. Um, you know, I worked on enough of the pitch books and enough of the Um, you know, analyses related to the digitization of certain industries to see that it was just a matter of time um, before stodgy industries like real estate, for instance, were going to be transformed by technology. And so that stuck with me. Um, You know, it didn't really materialize until I ultimately launched Cadre. Um, But my time at Goldman was incredible because, you know, I built an amazing network. Um, I, again, connected with um, you know, a group that is now an investor in our business and has become a really critical partner um, in that Goldman Sachs asset management has invested more than a quarter billion dollars on the Cadre platform. Uh, but the most important um, sort of learning that I had was just how powerful um, technology could be when applied to what I consider more antiquated industries. And I saw it, you know, with the number of uh, technology companies going public, uh, going through M&A and working more in an analyst's uh, perspective there. So that that was what I learned from the Goldman side was the technology uh, transformational opportunities that were going to be happening. Um, And then, you know, as I had mentioned, I was building my business and I caught the eye of Blackstone um, in 2011. Uh, I was contacted um, by the, the powers that be at Blackstone about, um, you know, the business that they were building. So they were just beginning to start their own single family real estate business. And, and keep in mind, Blackstone really didn't hire um, investment bankers who didn't work on the real estate investment banking side. I was a tech banker. And so they reached out because you know, I had this passion for investing um, in, in the residential real estate space through my own venture. And uh, what they what they saw was that there was a shared passion with you know their ambitions to build one of the largest uh, owners and landlords of single family homes. And so after they reached out and I had a chance to meet a number of folks there, um, you know I said, look, I want to see what the gold standard for private real estate investing looks like firsthand. And so I joined Blackstone, always knowing that um, one, I'm an entrepreneur at heart, and so uh, if I found opportunities or challenges um, or inefficiencies, I was going to do everything I could to address them, but to bring a different experience set, which was, you know, uh, an experience set uh, that actually fully had a, an appreciation for technology and the, uh, the potential for it to transform, you know, the space that we were investing in at Blackstone Real Estate. And that leads us to Cadre, because that sits at really at the intersection of all of these experiences you had, finance, technology and real estate help the folks listening um kind of go back to maybe the genesis of it um because you obviously saw some challenges from all of your experiences that made you want to build um this incredibly innovative company 
uh, one of the fastest growing fintechs, I should also add. Absolutely. So, so as you mentioned, the cadre is really the culmination of uh, my passions and experiences on the tech and the real estate side. Um, when I got to Blackstone, what I was just so amazed by was how lucrative uh, real estate investments and ownership of real estate investments could be. You know, we were uh, and they are an incredible asset manager. Um, you know, they, they've been building an incredible portfolio of, um, of real estate and alternative assets that were generating significant profits for investors. And um, I was also really, really excited about the breadth of real estate um, that we invested in, you know, whether it was uh, multifamily or uh, hospitality or industrial or office. These are all sectors that, you know, you, you see and you're, you know, you're traveling somewhere, you stay in a hotel, um, but it seemed foreign in some ways. Um, and, and more time I spent at Blackstone, the more I realized uh, that these were sectors and asset classes um, that if you own them, you could generate, you know, significant returns, significant yields, because in commercial real estate, unlike residential, um, you have leases and you have tenants and you have cash flow. Uh, and so, you own a home and it's great because you have somewhere you can call home. Um, but if your HVAC unit goes out um, or if you have a leak or there's a roof issue, um, you know, you can uh, you can be in the red pretty quickly. Well, in commercial real estate, because of the scale and because of the number of units you can own and because of the fact you have tenants paying, um, those are operating expenses that get, you know, sort of baked in and, and don't actually erode your yield the same way they do in residential. I didn't know that. And so the more time I spent there, the more I realized this was a tremendous asset class that could generate outsized returns and yield if you were a player in it and if you had access to it. Um, I also learned that the vast majority of the investors that we were working with were large institutions, sovereign wealth funds, endowments, foundations, pensions. Um, but the average individual, people who grew up like I grew up, or people in my network had no way to access commercial real estate. Um, and so this, this kind of, uh, this dissonance that was there was, you know, this is such a lucrative asset class, most important to build long-term wealth. Um, commercial real estate, you know, has uh, outperformed the S&P. It's a lot less volatile over the last 30 years, but the average individual had no way to invest in this lucrative sector. And so um, what became my passion project was how can I build a next generation platform, one that allows individuals and institutions to both have access to this lucrative asset class? Um, and is there a way for me to accelerate the leveling of the investing playing field, if you will, through technology? And the answer was yes. And that's really how Cadre um, was conceived, was out of this recognition that individuals should be able to invest in the very kinds of real estate I was investing in at Blackstone um, and be able to do so without having to be in the insider's network um, and instead um, through technology be able to invest in a more open platform, open interface manner um, and have better, more healthy financial futures because they had access to the sector. And so as a result of that recognition, I ultimately decided to leave Blackstone, to launch Cadre, um, and uh, I'm incredibly proud of the work that we've done um, and we're just getting started. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier, Harvard is an investor, their endowment is, and then that group at Goldman Sachs, which um, that that's just incredible too. So this is 2014 when you started and it was really just a groundbreaking platform. Um, and your focus is on commercial real estate. We should uh, emphasize that again. How have you seen the platform evolve over the years? Because you talk about this mission of democratizing access to the to this asset class. How have you seen that um, journey evolve? Yes. Yeah, so um, it's a great, great question. And, uh, you know, my approach to ultimately ensuring Cadre was the premier household name for any individual looking to invest in commercial real estate. And when we say commercial real estate, we actually define that as multifamily. So apartment um, buildings because they're multi-unit industrial um, warehouses, uh, office, hotel, um, we don't invest in retail, just given the challenges in the space. But those are the major sectors um, in, in, in uh, commercial real estate. And so 
you know, when I started the business, I wanted to make sure that uh, when people heard of cadre and they thought of cadre, they thought of quality, they thought of excellence, they thought of value, they thought of returns and yield. And what I, what I knew was that I was going to have to take a different approach, which, you know, for me is, 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 uh, uh, is not that um, foreign. Um, the approach I was going to take is I wanted to build the premier brand. I wanted to build the premier brand by delivering the best results and returns. Um, and I wanted to build a premier brand by attracting uh, the uh, clientele that I believed would give Cadre the greatest sort of halo effect, greatest credibility, um, and the greatest proof of the value that we were delivering. And so early on, early on being uh, the first four to five years, my focus was solely on uh, bringing together accredited investors and institutional investors um, who come to our platform, either invest in individual properties that our expert team, um, you know, folks like Mike Facitelli used to be the CEO of Vornado, head of Goldman's real estate group, who's one of my first backers, chairs the investment committee with myself. Um, you know, folks like Dan Rosenblum, who uh, ran acquisitions at Jim and Fortress. I wanted to make sure that um, we were serving uh, what was going to still be a relatively kind of select group of investors uh, to prove our value, to prove the fact that you could take a different approach to investing. You could invest online um, and you can invest in a lower fee manner than traditional funds charged, a more transparent manner, and then also a more liquid manner because we built the industries for a secondary market so people can get liquidity, which they haven't been able to do historically. And, um, and I wanted to do so by uh, forming partnerships. These partnerships with folks you know, like Harvard, we announced a partnership, for instance, with BlackRock recently, MacArthur Foundation, JPB, Goldman Sachs. These are renowned institutions that have um, you know, a large following, incredible track records. And I knew if we could get them to be adopters of our platform, then when it came time to you know, open up our platform to the masses, we'd be able to do so from a point of greater trust, greater credibility, and greater proof points. Um, and so we've been able to do that. We've been able to build these partnerships. We've been able to raise uh, hundreds of millions of capital from some of these leading institutions who are investors in our platform. And we've been able to deliver returns, um, returns that far outpace the market uh, and what others have been able to generate. Um, our current net IRR that we've delivered to our investors is about 28%. Um, so that's a net IRR annualized for folks on our platform. Um, we've uh, generated more than a 1.7 times net multiple on investors' capital, more than 340 million of capital returns. So we've been able to really deliver value and deliver partnerships uh, with a model that others said you know wouldn't work. And so um, the first four or five years was all about proving ourselves, building the brand, making sure people knew. Um, that Cadre was the premier platform to invest in either individual buildings or in portfolios of buildings. The next chapter for us is really about um, fulfilling that mission that I mentioned of you know, letting individuals have better, more vibrant financial futures and opening up access to the masses. Um, so we're now at this exciting inflection point where we built the brand. Now it's about lowering our minimum investment thresholds. So individuals can invest for thousands, if not hundreds of dollars. Um, it's about doing things like launching a mobile app. So there's a, a mobile experience for people to engage. Um, it's about launching new investment products that uh, are more retail investor oriented so that we can accommodate an unlimited number of investors. And that chapter of, of uh, going direct to the consumer, of opening up access to the masses, irrespective of your accreditation status or standards, um, and working with advisors to these individuals, that's the chapter I'm most excited about. And you only get there if you've laid the foundation and you built trust with your core product. And um, we put the legwork in to do so um, since 2014. Yeah, you mentioned building trust and the results. So um, they're, they're incredible. Like you just outlined there, more than 5 billion too in total transaction value. And yeah, your focus. I think when I first talked to you, um, it was you know institutional or credit investors, and now you you mentioned you're at this inflection point for um, the re opening up to the retail investor, which I know is always uh, your yes. goal. Like how how close are we to that? Or um, and like what like how do you reach a retail investor? Or get them excited about an asset class like commercial real estate? 
Because it's something we right. might not always think about, like who owns the building I'm sitting in right now, you know? Exactly, exactly. And, 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 the, and you know, the reality is that the folks that own that building, um, you know, are likely incredibly wealthy. Um, they're likely people who, um, you know, had access to invest in, you know, an array of, of buildings just like that because of who they knew. And what we want to do is, is make this insider world um, one that's more open and accessible to more people. But, you know, commercial real estate, it's, it's been one of the best performing asset classes in the right sectors, and, you know, in the right uh, segments. Multifamily, probably the most defensive asset class. Think about multifamily today. Um, you know, it's unfortunately challenging for a lot of people to buy homes. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, whether it's rates, whether it's lack of supply, um, well, what benefits from that? It's it's people who own multifamily um, because, you know, folks who otherwise would graduate to owning stay as renters, renewals go up, occupancy goes up. Um, but the people who own those multifamily buildings are not the average individual. And so that's just one anecdote and one way to think about why a platform like Cadre and why being able to invest in multifamily or industrial when we've seen all time high in e-commerce traffic and warehouse space is, is so attractive. Um, but to your question of, you know, how do we reach that, that retail investor base and how do we open up access uh, to the masses um, and how far we are away from that, um, we're pretty close. You know, we're, we're, we're weeks, if not months away um, from beginning to uh, have an investment product that is accessible um, to the masses. And it is accessible to investors irrespective of their accreditation status and standards. And so um, we, uh, this year, I guess is, is, is an easy way to think about it, um, is, uh, is when we will be opening up access to the masses. And what's so exciting is uh, we've been putting a lot of work into making sure we have the right product because a lot of it is structuring with the SEC, making sure you know the offering, which will be a portfolio level investment offering so people get diversification is the right structure for folks to participate. Um, but then it's about marketing and education as well. You know, we hired a guy named Dustin Cohn, who is a former chief marketing officer at Marcus, actually thought of the name Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Um, you know, he took what was a um, relatively closed select brand, Goldman Sachs, but an incredible reputation and made it accessible to the mass market, to the consumers. And, there's a lot of parallels between uh, what he did there and what he's going to be doing for Cadre. We have to make sure people understand why commercial real estate is such an important part of your portfolio, why it's outperformed, why it's a great hedge against inflation, um, you know, why it's a great way to generate yield. Um, and a lot of that is about content, a lot of that about conversations like we're having yeah. um, and making that more available to more people. So that's what we'll be doing in addition to launching this product. Yeah. Um, that, Dustin's uh, great, be, by the so, way. He really is. Sure. Um, we, let's also just talk about the the state of commercial real estate because you mentioned it is one of those asset classes that has done quite well, um, albeit certain sectors of it not so much. Um, then there's certain ones that you all avoid. How is it that you kind of walk the folks through the landscape and maybe are you focused on certain geographies when it comes to commercial real estate? How are you all thinking about commercial real estate? Yes, we think about it in really two, two, uh, two dimensions. One is geography and, and, and location. Um, and everybody always says real estate's location, location, location. They're That's right. right. <laughs> um, but the other is sector and the other is asset class. Um, and when you overlay the right geography with the right asset class, um, you can outperform, you know, and, and when you get one of those wrong, then you can, uh, see really challenging outcomes. Um, and so, uh, from a geography perspective, we um, we focus on uh, what we call the cadre MVP, the most valuable markets around the country, and it's around 15 or so markets that we update on a monthly basis. Um, and these are markets in locations uh, where there's unique growth and unique affordability. Uh, and we've been doing this for years now, even before the pandemic. Um, but you know, the, the way to think about what those markets, where those markets are, you know, markets like where I know you're based out of, you know, we, we, we love Florida, we love, um, Orlando and Tampa. We've been investing there for years, um, because of the fact that, uh, there's a, a relative, uh, high affordability and high growth rate as well in those markets. Um, we've invested heavily in Dallas, Texas, um, in Phoenix, Arizona and Savannah, Georgia. 
Nashville, Tennessee, a lot of the coastal markets in the smile, um, even markets in California like Sacramento, um, where we've seen, again, unique growth and affordability. The data science team is focused on you know, making sure that the numbers work, but then we've got a team of experts in-house to kind of sanity check. Um, so those coastal markets we continue to believe in uh, because of the, the affordability and because of the growth that we're seeing there um, and because of some of the, the, the business um, friendly uh, approaches and policies, whether it's tax related or otherwise, um, that make those markets so interesting. But that in of itself is not enough. You have to overlay that with the right sectors and the right asset classes as well. So what are the asset classes that we think are, are going to be resilient, especially in this um, period of time where we're seeing um, some signs of a recession, we're seeing a ton of inflation. Multifamily is one. Um, you know, multifamily uh, is what we consider sort of apartment buildings and communities. And that's because, you know, in the single family space, um, folks are uh, either on the sidelines or being priced out. And so um, because rates are high and because, you know, there's uh, high costs um, to building homes and because of the supply chain issues. And so the beneficiaries have been those who can own multifamily apartment buildings. We want to, again, let anybody own a piece of an apartment building or otherwise. And so we focus on multifamily within those markets. Uh, we focus as well on um, uh, industrial, so warehouse space. We know that there is an all-time high growth in e-commerce. And so, for instance, we've, we've we announced the close of a uh, successful close of a um Phoenix industrial deal that we acquired and generated north of a 60% net return to our investors, double their money less than a couple of years. And that was a perfect example of Phoenix was within our top markets, industrial within our top three sectors. Um, and so we're going to continue to stay focused on industrial and then believe it or not, hospitality, um, but drive to and drive through hospitality. So we don't focus on the business oriented hotels because that seen a significant slowdown with, with the pandemic, but people are traveling around the country um, and you know traveling to um, places like Savannah, Georgia um, for a week and or a week just to, to get away and to get more space. And a lot of the hotels in those markets are, are growing significantly. So we like actually the leisure hotel hospitality uh, sector within those markets. Um, where we're staying away are you know, large office buildings, especially in the big cities because um, the way that, you know, the demand is going to work for those kinds of office buildings um, is going to look fundamentally different, uh, you know, the way, in the way it has. And a lot of landlords are not moving quickly enough to adjust their space to be more open, um, you know, to acknowledge the fact that the five-day work week is not something everybody's embracing going forward. Um, and as a result, you know, you're seeing lower uh, occupancy, you're seeing less cash flow, and deterioration in value in, in the office space at large. So we've stayed away from that sector uh, by and large. Same thing with retail, just given e-commerce and the fact that uh, you know physical storefronts are, are still few and far between. Um, and we also are staying away from you know the big business travel oriented hotels because we think you know people are using Zoom a lot more than than uh, than than they used to. And so. Um, that's been our approach. If you overlay, you know, the geography with the sector, you can find great opportunities because real estate's such a big market and there's so many inefficiencies, but you need to be aligned with the right partner, right platform who's taking that kind of thoughtful approach. Yeah. I mean, everything that you just shared there, like the leisurely hotels um, doing well, wanting to stay away from things like retail, the, the city, the business centers of cities, um, you kind of unpacked some of the trends that we saw through COVID manifest right. themselves. Do you, let me just ask you about future of work. Do you, do you see an, uh, I don't know, like, do you see a moment where maybe we do return to the city business districts and the skyscrapers are full again? Like, do you have any sort of thoughts there as it relates to future of work and the, the offices yes. we were all once used to going to? Yes. So I, I do believe that there will be a return, um, you know, to work that actually uh, people follow through on. Because I, I know I've heard enough uh, colleagues and peers say, yeah, we've been trying to get people to return and keep having these false starts. And um, my view is that eventually there, there will be a return. It's going to look a lot different, though. Um, the reason I believe there will be a return is because, number one, I do think uh, – you know, with some of the macro challenges we're seeing, 
a lot of the leverage that was in the hands of employees will switch to the hands of employers. Um, you're hearing about, you know, companies who are doing layoffs. And, and so I, I think that, you know, that's going to change the dynamic a bit. The other interesting thing that I think people aren't always fully aware of is um, some of the, the youngest people, and I can speak from our experiences at Cadre, some of the youngest folks that, that are right out of college or a few years out of school, they actually want to be in person. You know, the, they want to work, they want to build those bonds, they want to get out of their, their places, um, their, their apartments, and, um, and they want to have, you know, a space where they can learn and get mentored and grow and, and just have an outlet. Um, and what you're seeing in a lot of, uh, a lot of companies is it's actually, um, you know, older millennials and, and, and you know, the generation uh, even above that, that are kind of reluctant to return um, some of it I understand, you know, some of it's about, you know, kind of you know, childcare and, um, you know, I just had a son, so I, I get that. I, at the same time, I don't think there's anything that can replace uh, that in-person um, brainstorming or working. And so what I think will happen is uh, in early 2023, you'll begin seeing uh, significantly more people returning, but they're going to return in a different way to the office. Uh, they'll be less frequent, so you won't see that kind of consistent five-day work week. But what you will see um, is more meaningful get-togethers. You know, you'll see uh, maybe it's bi-weekly management team meetings in person in the office or monthly management team meetings in person in the office. Um, you'll see more team events and team gatherings and after hours, after work, get-togethers. Um, and you'll see, uh, you know, uh, three, four uh, uh, workday week that's consistent where you can expect 70 to 80 percent of your workforce in the office. Uh, I think that for a lot of the people, a lot of the companies that have been more distributed, where people have uh, been based out of different cities, um, that that, you know, that entire dynamic will stay. Um, you'll just have to be more intentional about how do you create parity between folks who are in office and who are not in office. We do things like, you know, if we, if we have a large number of people outside of New York, um, we'll ask everybody who's in the office uh, to, um, if it's a meeting, you know, to, to work in an office uh, and be on their laptop so that, you know, there isn't that, that dynamic where you've got 30 folks in the office and then, you know, 10 people who are all, you know, kind of on their own laptops outside the office. So I think, you know, people are just going to have to be a bit more intentional and flexible about making sure that there's uh, sort of a level of, of consistency between who's in the office and who's not. But I do think by and large, by early 2023, uh, you will see a much more consistent return. Um, I don't think you'll get back to where we were before the pandemic. Genie's been sort of let out the bottle. But I also don't think this um, kind of period of extended ambiguity is sustainable. I don't think it's good for culture. I definitely don't think it's good for that next generation of, of, um, of workers who are really trying to uh, grow, to learn, to get mentored. Um, and, uh, and again, this is not a hard and fast rule. So there'll be some companies who can work distributed, but I think you will see a return. Uh, and I'm excited about it personally. I think you're probably right. Let me talk to you about your recent transition from CEO of Cadre to executive chairman. And just to kind of wrap up this conversation, because I know there are a lot of things that you care about and you see challenges as opportunities, Ryan. What are you what are you focused on right now? What are the things that you care most about that you're trying to affect change on? Absolutely. So I, look, I, um, um, I have always said that what's most important to me is um, cadre fulfilling you know, our vision. Um, and our vision is really about promoting um, financial prosperity for every individual um, in the world. And what that comes down to, and I know it sounds ambitious and, and lofty, what that comes down to is reaching as many people as possible with access to investments that help drive people's future forward, like real estate and like commercial real estate. Uh, and what I need to do and need to be focused on in order to fulfill that vision is uh, a few things. Number one, partnerships. Um, you know, I'm fortunate to have been a key architect of our partnership with BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, Harvard, Ford Foundation, a number of others as well that have given us credibility and gravitas as we look to uh, open up access and to build trust with people who are a little bit skeptical of, you know, investing more broadly and especially investing in something like real estate or alternatives. Um, so I'm spending a lot more of my time on who are those next 
key anchors and partners as we think about uh, growth of our platform. Um, I'm also spending a lot more time now on what are the right next investment products or strategies for us to launch. You know, we've been pretty clear that real estate equity is where we spend most of our time, but I think there's an opportunity in credit and debt. I think there's an opportunity in other asset classes. Why not infrastructure or farmland or natural resources? And so helping incubate those next growth products on our roadmap is another area that I've got to be laser focused on. Um, evangelizing our business, making sure people hear about who we are, why I founded the business and what we do is something else that I'll be spending more time on having conversations like this, which I haven't frankly had the bandwidth to do historically, but are critical um, and that I actually enjoy a lot. Um, and then finally, I'm very focused on how do we build a network that's truly inclusive? Um, how do we build a more equitable real estate ecosystem where everybody can benefit? I've been on the outside looking in up until recently. Um, there should be more women operators and developers. There should be more minority operators and developers. We should be using our, our platform to reach communities across the country and across the world that have been overlooked, marginalized, and forgotten as well. And so um, we're working on something called the Cadre Access Network, as well as our foundation that's focused on ensuring that there's equal access across the board to investing, to raising money on our platform, um, to, to uh, raising debt and financing. Um, and, you know, I can't do it all. No one person can scale any meaningful organization based off self-determination alone. And so I've chosen to spend my time focused on those areas um, so that we can fulfill the promise of this business and vision. Um, we've got every opportunity and it's really going to be about execution and it's going to be about me working hand in hand with our leadership team um, to, uh, to achieve that. And so I'm excited about being able to spend more time in those areas and some others we'll be able to announce soon. Um, and, uh, and bring the vision to life. Well, we'll certainly be following. Where can I send folks uh, to learn more about you or the work that Cadre is doing? Where would you recommend sending them? Cadre.com. Um, we, uh, we just did a website refresh where we have a bunch of information on our latest offerings. Um, and, uh, um, and then, of course, we've got all the corresponding social as well. But Cadre.com has everything you'd want to know about the business, where we are, and that's C-A-D-R-E.com. Amazing. Well, Ryan Williams, founder and executive chairman of Cadre, I thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.